Good morning. Good morning. It's a high Sabbath we have, you know, with communion together. Very solemn time. Um, let us pray. Our fathers, we just take a moment now as we want to thank you for the music we've had, the scripture reading, the prayers, the encouraging words, that we're preparing our hearts to partake of the emblems that represent peace between us and your Father, um, represent a healing, really, not just for us, but for the universe to be in unison again. And so, Father, we know it came at a high cost, that we know you love us so much, and we just want to thank you for that. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is what Pilate said, behold the man, and we could, we could, as we heard in the scripture reading, behold Jesus in a lot of ways, as a great teacher, he taught as no one else had ever taught, but John says, the Baptist said, and he told his disciples, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, and that's what we're going to focus on. There's a lot of things we could focus on life of Christ, but today, for our communion service, we're particularly interested in Jesus as the Lamb of God. Notice what it says here in the King James. Then we're going to look at Weymouth, uh, Weymouth uh, New Testament. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, Seeth the Son, and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. But notice how that word seeth is translated in Weymouth. For this is my Father's will, that everyone who what? Fixes his gaze on the Son of God and believes in him should have the life of the ages or eternal life. And I'll raise him to life on the last day. And that power of fixing the gaze, gaze, is is, uh, to look upon is beautifully illustrated by a camera. So if I was going to take a picture right now, it wouldn't be going like this. Oh, look at these nice pictures I'm going to take doing this, right? But you take a camera and you stay still. And then I'm going to set the camera so it can't move. And I'm going to work on the focus. I'm going to look at the lighting. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to focus. And that's what we're to do with Jesus. Is set our gaze upon Christ. As if we were even painting a portrait. You know how a painter will look at all the details. The shape of the hand, the face. And that's what we're to do. This is really what this Greek word is telling us to do. Not just to see, like we just say, oh, you just take a look. It's to gaze, it's to paint a portrait, it's to take a picture, it's to be really very focused. And that's how his image is reproduced in us. And of course the image we most desire to be reproduced in us is to see him as the lamb. In fact, we know Jesus or God wants us to do that because a third of the gospels is about the last week of his life. And so 
The Holy Spirit's inspiring people to write the Gospels and says, you know, of all the pictures you could take of Jesus as a man, as a preacher, and things like that, healing the sick, I want you to spend more time taking pictures or portraits of Jesus in the closing scenes of his life. Because it does something to us. Because inherently, we're self-centered. But if I were to be still and focus on Jesus as the lamb, point by point, and get a really good portrait, not a glimpse, a portrait fixed in my mind, will it help me overcome self-centeredness? Absolutely. Because the deeper those impressions are in my mind, the more it affects the way I think and feel. Okay. Christ is sitting on his, or Christ is sitting for his portrait in every disciple. It's such a beautiful thought, isn't it? And that's in Desire of Ages. You'll find it in the book Christian Service as well. Um, I think this is one worth memorizing. Christ is, he's sitting, you ever, like he's sitting, I want you to now paint me. Wouldn't that be beautiful if we could do that? And that takes time. Looking at all the detail. It says in Desire of Ages 302, if the eye, if the eye is kept fixed on Christ, the work of the Spirit ceases not until the soul is conformed to his image. The pure element of love will expand the soul, giving it a capacity for higher attainments for increased knowledge of heavenly things so that it will not rest short of the fullness. If I really don't just get glimpses, if I really take the time to see Jesus as a portrait made in me, the Holy Spirit, it's not that he ever stops working. But because our mind is fixed, our thoughts, because I can see not just with my eyes, but my my mind. I can see Jesus with my mind. And if I see Jesus with my mind, as my mind is fixed on Jesus, the Holy Spirit is able to do more in me than if my mind's not fixed on Jesus. And he said, oh, there's Jeff. He's now thinking about Jesus. I'm going to go right back to work. Not that he ever stopped. But if I allow the Holy Spirit to do his work because I've chosen to fix my gaze, I've chosen for Jesus to be a portrait, he's able to take my mind and expand it to enjoy spiritual things. That's what happens to the mind. The more we take time fixing our thoughts upon Christ. It's actually just a law of the mind, isn't it? Okay, I mean, science would teach that. And here's how the scripture says it. But we all with open face beholding as, a, as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from what? From glory to glory, from one aspect of holiness and become holier from glory to glory, from character development to character development, even as by the spirit of the Lord. The transformation from one degree of holiness to another depends on what? Constancy with which we keep our eyes fixed upon the master pattern. The development of character by the beholding process is gradual. It is growth. 
constancy. Every day. Could I become today a degree more like Jesus? Imagine if I did that. One degree more per day, per week. Imagine what happens in a hundred days. One degree more like Jesus. The portrait of Jesus. My life transformed into his image. Degree from glory to glory, from faith to faith. Moment to moment, Christ reproduced in us. And ultimately, isn't that what Christ is ultimately waiting for? And this is why the devil tries to get our mind focused on the world and the faults of others and our own imperfections and things like that because it preoccupies the mind and keeps it from consistently thinking about the only one who can get us out of this world. There's one life that's eternal that put on this flesh. Adam had eternal life, but he forfeits it through sin. So Christ becomes a second Adam, that eternal life that comes from Christ, okay? The goal, the character goal of spiritual growth is to develop, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.13, unto a, we don't start as a perfect man when we accept Christ, but that's the goal, degree by degree, unto the measure of the stature of the what? The actual fullness of Christ. As if I was looking at this portrait of Jesus and I took it all in. Everything he did, everything he said. And you just take it in. And then degree by degree, I'm being changed. It's not all done in a day, but through a lifetime. And that's this law that we all are familiar with, the law of beholding. Our characters are determined by what we look at, whether it be through the physical eyes or the mind or our thoughts. We always look at what we think about and we think about what we look at. So does it matter what I look at? Yeah, I was preaching this or teaching this at the prison because the guys don't have a lot to do in the prison. There aren't a lot of programs. There are more programs in state prisons than private prisons. And so guys have a lot of time. A lot of them are just, you know, watching a lot of television. But I say, look, what you watch is what you'll be thinking about. So you got to be very careful what you're watching because it controls your thoughts. And so, but if you start thinking about Jesus, then you're going to have less interest in watching spiritual or earthly things. Works both ways, doesn't it? And so Proverbs, of course, says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Think of this word consider in Hebrews 3.1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The word consider has a deeper meaning than what we mostly think about in English, but it means to look at closely, to observe. Observe Jesus. Think closely. Look, look at the details. To fix your mind on it with a view to carefully examine it, to think on it with care. Don't just think of it as information. Think about it passionately. Like it matters to my life. That what I see here and understand here changes me. It's not just information. It's just not intellect. In order to be like Jesus, we must continually study his life and consider or contemplate how his sinless life changes me. It's not just me seeing his sinless life. It's me examining how, in a careful way, how it affects me. Consider the meaning of his life. 
Why did he live this life? Not just look at the, why did he have to live this life? And he did it for us. I want to kind of switch to a theme here. It's related, but this beautiful statement, Acts of the Apostles 48. When Christ gave his disciples the promise of the Spirit, he was nearing the close of his earthly ministry. He was standing in the shadow of the cross with a full realization of the load of guilt that was to rest upon him as the sin bearer. Imagine Jesus, he knows that he's going to be crucified. And he's getting closer, and there's a time where he's, he's in the shadows of the cross. And eventually he's, he's on the cross. But is this a true statement? As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior? Well, a promised Savior. A promised Savior. For the plan of salvation was laid before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 says that. John wrote, the lamb, of, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, or even before the world was made, Jesus had already, already knew the fall of Adam and Eve. Already knew what it would be like to take man's place. Knew ahead of time what he'd go through, and he still chooses to do it. Because that's the cost. That's why he would come. So in a way... He was in the shadow of the cross even from back then because of what he knew. Is that a fair statement? He knew it as he was getting closer to Gethsemane. Well, how could he not know that when he's yet in heaven knowing everything? Right? In its very inception, sin has brought suffering to the heart of God. Is that a true statement? As soon, and even before Adam and Eve, imagine... He creates Adam and Eve, and they don't sin the first year or the second year or third year, probably. It's probably somewhere down the road a little bit. And, uh, but as soon as he created them, he knew, didn't he? He knew it would cost him. Is he kind of, in a way, in the shadows of the cross? Imagine the burden that God carried for a long time, knowing this was the cost. Wow. And so, and because of that perfect knowledge of the future, in one sense, the Son of God walked in the shadows of the cross, but this shadow deepened when he became a person, right? Became one of us. Did it deepen at age 12 when he saw the lamb and realized it was him? He was even more in the shadow of the cross. Wow. Imagine what Jesus felt when John the Baptist says, Behold the... What's that tell him? He's going to be crucified. Which he knew before that. Which he knew before he created even our world. What an amazing... And in a way, this is how Calvary becomes a science and song of the universe throughout eternity. How God made a world knowing the cost. Walking in the shadow of knowing he'd be crucified by the very ones he created. You know, when Jesus realized at age 12 he was the Lamb of God, there were people like Caiaphas who was already born. There were people living in the world that he knew would be responsible mostly for his crucifixion. You know, to know that ahead of time. 
And, I, and in a way, if I were to try to apply that, I'd say, you know, I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. And yet I know God had a purpose, just like he has a purpose for you. You were born for what reason? Any thought here? You were born to worship God. You were born to, in these last days, to reflect his character. You were born to share his love. You were born to... Think of the church you're sitting in today. You were born to be part of a movement, to stake a stand. Jesus knew in an early age he was born to die for this world. We were born, God led us to this church to take a stand for truth. Though our champions are few, we were born for this. We were called to this. Does that help knowing that? And stay true to our calling. We're not here by chance. God knew we'd be here before he even created this world. He knew all of us would even be sitting in this congregation today. Jesus knew. And we need to be thinking about, why am I here? What's this life that God has for me? Why me? Why now? And it's something to really think about and to pray about and to commit ourselves to because your life has purpose. We need to be asking ourselves, why did God lead me here? Is that a fair question? Not until the sin, sin, and sinners are no more will Jesus, the Son of God, fully escape the shadow of the cross. By our sins, we still crucify him. Even today, is Jesus in the shadow of the cross in a way? Yeah, because by our sins, we crucify the Son of God afresh. Isn't that right? He's still pained by the sin that goes on in our world, even today. And in a way, though he's already died on the cross, he's still kind of in the shadow of it until this whole controversy is over. What an amazing God. And then think about it this way. Throughout eternity, even when Satan is destroyed, throughout eternity, Christ will be praised as the Lamb. Look at it, Revelation 5, 12, and 13. The Apostle John was given a vision of the redeemed and heard the unnumbered angelic host saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was, past tense. They're still singing it. They're not singing this song until he's crucified. They're singing this song long after the crucifixion. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power. Power, he already had power. But now they can see that he's even more worthy. You know, in a way, Lucifer's rebellion is Christ is not worthy. He's not equal to the Father. Why do you give him all this? All this honor and power and glory. And what the universe then realizes after Calvary Lucifer, he's not just wrong, he's really wrong. Because the honor Jesus had before Calvary and before becoming a man, Jesus was actually worthy to receive even more honor and more glory and more power. Because his demonstration, of which we take these emblems, 
of his willingness as creator to die for his creatures who sinned against him, he was actually always throughout eternity worthy of even more praise than he had ever had. And this becomes the song, uh, praise and song throughout eternity. And then think of this beautiful scene. There will be people saved who didn't know Jesus in this life, but they, like a, like take a child who couldn't even conceive of Jesus, but they're there because of their parents' faith and their obedience to their parents, right? They didn't know Jesus had nail prints in his hands. Imagine this beautiful scene in heaven where someone who's young, too young to have known Jesus, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Isn't that a beautiful statement? So Jesus will bear the nail prints in his hands throughout eternity. And I'm not saying he's still standing in the shadows of the cross at this point, but we'll never forget what the cross meant, which is why we take these emblems so that we never forget. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hands as he was pierced. A beautiful statement, isn't it, by Habakkuk? And I believe we have one more. The wounds in Jesus' hands would not only be a reminder of the horribleness of sin, but an assurance that the affliction shall not rise a second time. Okay? And so it will. He, from, from the inception of sin, at least, he's in the shadows of the cross, and this covers many, many millennia until he dies on a cross and until this whole thing is finished and Christ's victory will be as complete had been the failure. And this will be our last slide here before we partake of the emblems and do our foot washing. But I want you to think about John 12 here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. If I had a tomato seed in my hand, for it to grow tomatoes, what has to happen to the seed? It has to die. If it dies, I could wind up with a bushel of tomatoes. There's no harvest of this world unless Jesus dies. So as we partake of these emblems, we realize there's no hope for any of us unless Jesus dies. And then there can be a harvest. Okay? And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things where? In earth or things in heaven. Let's think about that for a moment because if Jesus' death for our sins was more than for the salvation of humanity. Christ's death brings about a change to things that are even in, in heaven. And of course, the controversy starts in heaven. 
But even though Lucifer took a third of the angels, it still affected angels. Even though he just took a third of the angels, it still affected the other worlds. Not that they became fallen, were they on one, only one fallen world. But by his death, he did something more than redeem all of us. It did something to the universe. It brought about the restoration of perfect love, unity, and loyalty throughout the universe for eternity. Which is why the entire world, having now even a greater glimpse of this God who was love, actually brings a security to this universe and a loyalty and a unity to this universe that we could not have had had we not been on a fallen world. That's not a, a reason for or justification to be a, but God took something bad and he made the universe even more secure by this great demonstration of his love by which <clears throat> we'll go ahead and prepare our hearts to partake of these emblems. And in the Adventist church, we practice open communion. If you're not a member of this church, if you've accepted Jesus as your personal savior, you are able to participate with us. And in our church, before we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we have a foot washing service that we call the humility or the ordinance of humility. You know, probably one of the greatest things we need to overcome is pride. Pride seems to be at the very core of Satan's rebellion and the core of our being, of our carnal mind. One of the most beautiful things to pray for every day is, Father, may I have the humility of Jesus today. That no matter what everybody says or does, I will respond with the love of Jesus. And so um, the women and the men will be downstairs, but the women, as you go downstairs, they'll be on the right side and the men on the other. Um, and so we'll separate it that, that way. So once you've done your foot washing, we'll come up all up here together and partake of the Lord's Supper. But let us pray. Father, we... We realize that Christ's death and resurrection and the perfect life he lived and his willingness to die, that there could be a harvest of the human family of the redeemed, is something far more special than we know. Help us, Father, to appreciate even more the sacrifice made for us, the, the shadow, the millennia that Christ truly walked in the shadow of the cross. Uh, Father, help us more and more to become like him as we each day spend time gazing upon, fixing our thoughts upon Jesus and all that he has done. And so, Father, now as we dismiss, bless us in our ordinance of humility. May we come back as we partake of the Lord's Supper is our prayer in Christ's name.